Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, welcome to episode 90. I'm continuing my interview with David Danks, professor of data science and philosophy at UC San Diego and former L.L. Thurstone professor of philosophy and psychology at Carnegie Mellon, where he was the chief ethicist of their Block Center for Technology and Society. His interests are at the intersection of philosophy, cognitive science, and machine learning, using ideas, methods, and frameworks from each to advance our understanding of complex interdisciplinary problems. I'm really impressed with his facility at explaining hard topics lucidly and approachably, and I encourage you to look him up on YouTube. Last week, we talked about how machine learning, philosophy, and neuroscience intersect, and how we engage the public in meaningful efforts to make AI safe, ranging from regulation to psychology. Some of the things we're going to talk about this time include how social media platforms have created problems through irresponsible use of AI and algorithms, some nuance of the legal issues surrounding that, and look at bias through David's taxonomy of algorithmic bias. You'll hear us talk about Section 230, which is part of the United States Code, i.e. federal law. And to explain a bit of that, it says that a website that carries content created by its users is not treated as the publisher of that content. Because otherwise, a platform like Facebook could be sued for copyright infringement anytime someone puts up a picture of Mickey Mouse. As long as the site owner isn't choosing the content that they publish from their users, but is just funneling it through, they retain that immunity. Let's see what we do with that as we get back into the interview with David Danks. It suggests to me that there's a role that psychologists could be playing here, because I'm reminded of how Taiwan addresses disinformation. It's a much smaller country, of course, but they're very effective at dealing with it because they have a strategy for heading it off at a national level that is uh, based and rooted in psychology of putting out a competing meme that's funny and mocks the disinformation and then is more viral. And I think that we could use more of this perhaps behavioral psychology to inform the way that we approach these things. Certainly Facebook had had more vocal behavioral psychologists. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten into this trouble. Who knows? You pointed out how they would have done it anyway. Does your sphere of interest also encompass a behavioral psychology as a lever to pull? It does, though things start to get ethically tricky in some of these spaces. And they also start to, at least here in the U.S., get legally tricky. So one of the things is, as you said, so take, for example, standard disinformation, misinformation. It's now, there are pretty robust experimental results showing that the first image you see is sort of sticky in your mind, even if it's a false image and somebody immediately shows you, oh, no, no, here's the right one, you are much more likely to remember the false one as though it were true. And this is true in general. So if I give you a piece of information and then I say, oh, no, no, haha, just kidding, you are still, if we come back to you two days later, 
there's a non-trivial chance that you're going to remember what I said as though it were true, that you don't remember, in essence, mm. the correction that I gave you. Lawyers do this in arguing in front of juries all the time. Oh, yeah. Yep. And in fact, it's even worse when that false information fits with a prior narrative that you have. So if you have a sort of story in your head of how the world works or how this domain works, and I give you a piece of false information that fits with that narrative, it's incredibly difficult to get it out of your beliefs just by saying, no, it's wrong. Here's the counter evidence. Here's all the reasons that you shouldn't believe it. Doesn't matter. Those beliefs are still quite sticky in people. So what this tells us is this tells us things like, if there is an image going around that is been doctored in some way, some manipulated in some way, it's not enough for Facebook to slap a label on it that says, this has been manipulated. Doesn't matter. At the individual level, somebody might be able to realize what's going on and not fall prey to the deception. But at the aggregate level, we know there will be a significant number of people who fall prey to it. It isn't even good enough that Facebook goes, oh, this image is going around. Here's the correct one. And so we'll immediately display the correct one. What you have to do is you have to, when somebody goes to look at that image, you have to sort of intercept what's happening and stick in the true image first. Or you have to actively work to disrupt the narrative that the person has. So not just the single fact, but the broader narrative. And there's various techniques that we know how to do this, but you can start to see where this is becoming ethically and legally tricky. The ethical concern is that it leads to a very sort of paternalistic stance. It's Facebook knows best. They're going to come in and shape your beliefs. Now, I find this to be a tricky space to think about. It's a hard one because we allow lots and lots of paternalism in our societies. We allow companies and governments to make decisions for us. Sometimes they have to shape our decisions, whether we want it or not. I mean, just take the simple example of the order that a restaurant lists the dishes on their menu will change what you're likely to order. So if they gave you the options in a different order, probabilistically, they can change what people will order. But you can't have a menu with no order, right? You have to have some kind of ordering to it. So the question becomes, well, should the restaurant have a menu order that leads people to be more likely to pick healthy food or more expensive food or more profitable food? And that's a decision that the restaurant is having to make on our behalf. And so... In many ways, a lot of what is happening with social networks, I think, feels similar in the sense that Facebook says, well, no, we can't intervene to show the true photo before the false photo, because that would be an intervention. But not doing anything is itself a kind of intervention, because it isn't as though there's some privileged stance to the marketplace of ideas, because that metaphor, nice as it is, doesn't actually capture human psychology in all of its messiness. And this value that we shouldn't intervene can be weaponized against us, has been weaponized against us by third parties. Don't want to get off into the Russian scandal at this point, but there's enough evidence that people have used that to manipulate the social media to change preferences. And I think what you're saying here is something that's very interesting that when it's the Facebook algorithm choosing what goes, then people assume that it's a free market. But when there's an intervention, they assume that it's humans disrupting what they should have gotten by some sort of natural force. 
Do you agree with that perception? Is there perhaps an opening there for something like if Facebook said, we're not going to have humans intervene, we're just going to have adjust the algorithm. So it intervenes, not us. Yeah, I think what you're pointing to is, and this goes back to the earlier discussion of people's misconceptions about AI, there is, I think, a pretty widespread view, especially in these spaces, that if it's an algorithm, it's just math, so it doesn't actually have any values. It's not preferencing it. It's objective fact that this is the next thing I should be shown. And if you change away from the objective fact, you're lying to me in some sense. But the problem is that that's not actually how algorithms work. Algorithms do have values built into them. They have values built into them because almost all algorithms these days are built through a process of optimization, where you say, here's what counts as success, and then you've got some other algorithm, that the learning algorithm, that builds a model, that finds a model that's really, really good according to that measure of success. But that means that when I, as a machine learning person, am building a model for deployment in some system, I'm putting some of my values into the model. I'm putting my values in because I'm saying, this is what matters here. And sometimes it's obvious what matters. What matters is that people not die or that we get the diagnosis of a disease right. But other times it's not as obvious and it can be harder. So an example that hits close to home for me as a professor is... Suppose I wanted to have a model that could predict and improve student success. But what counts as student success? Is it they stick around until they get a piece of paper? Is it they get a GPA that's of a certain level? Is it that they're happy? How do we measure these things? So this general problem of how we take the vague and ambiguous and fuzzy things that matter to us and build models that need precision that problem of operationalization is one that inevitably leads to value choices being made. And so we see this in the Facebook algorithm. I mean, you could easily do the exact parallel to the Facebook news algorithm in a way that was not optimized for clicks, was not optimized for attention, but was optimized for informativeness by any number of different measures of that. Um, technically, that, that's actually not hard to do. But the choice was made to optimize for something different. And so we need to move away from this idea of thinking that algorithms are objective, that they reveal the way the world really is, and instead recognize all the ways that values are already shaping these online spaces. And so while I don't think that we should have sort of blanket interventions at every opportunity, and I recognize ethical worries about coercion and paternalism, I think that we need to be able to have a more open and honest discussion of what are the values that we collectively want to see realized through these kinds of platforms. Now, I haven't talked at all about the legal issues. I don't know if you want to dive down that rabbit hole. That's a whole other issue that is, I think, particularly distinctive here in the U.S., but there are versions of it in other countries, which is there's a lot of incentives, legal incentives and financial incentives for the platforms to sort of be able to frame themselves as minimally intervening, as doing as little as possible. There's a whole set of questions about whether they're right in that interpretation, but I think that that's clearly a factor that's playing a role as well. Because it might imperil their common carrier status and frame them as a publisher instead? Yeah, I mean, the, for those of your listeners who might know it, we're talking here about Section 230, which essentially provides 
that if all I do is transmit information rather than create it, there's a kind of presumptive freedom from liability for that content. It's not blanket. There are things like child pornography that I have to take down assertively and aggressively. But in general, it means if somebody posts something that is defamatory on Facebook, I can't sue Facebook. I have to sue the person and tell Facebook, take it down. And as long as Facebook takes it down in a timely manner, it's okay. Now, this might seem sort of strange. You might have some listeners who are thinking, why on earth would a company get that kind of freedom from, you know, newspapers don't have this freedom for what they print. And the history of it actually goes back to the early days of the internet, when there was a recognition for, to use some older names, things like AOL and MySpace and these sorts of earlier parts of the internet that they simply didn't have the resources. And it would be unreasonable for them to have the resources to monitor absolutely everything that was going up for the content. And so this was a way to help grow the internet as a connective tissue, as a way of bringing people together by giving an incentive for some companies to make that their business model. They were going to bring people together in hopefully productive ways. Fast forward now a number of years, and what this means is it means that Facebook, for example, looks and says, well, wait a second, if we start intervening, if we start policing this, then the worry is that they will no longer be solely a content carrier. They will be a content provider because they will be shaping the conversation in a substantive way. That's the worry, Mm. in which case they would potentially be brought to court, might lose their Section 230 protection, at which point Facebook as an entity, you know, the business model no longer works. Couldn't one argue that having an algorithm that decides what people should see that they have deliberately crafted has already gone down that road? Well, so that's one of the interesting things. There is a lot of concern about things like Section 230. What hasn't happened is any actual court case to tell us where the line is between a content carrier and a content provider or content creator. We actually don't know, like we as a collective legal community here in the U.S., not that I am a lawyer in any way, but we don't know where that line is. As you said, the line can't be that you truly just carry everything. I mean, we got rid of that when we said you have to take down child pornography affirmatively. You don't get to wait until somebody notices it. You have to take it down immediately. So we know that there's got to be some amount of intervention by the platform. That's okay. You could imagine a platform that's, and none do this, but you could imagine one that said, well, unless you produce content that looks exactly like this or has exactly these views, then we'll take it down. Well, that clearly has crossed the line into content creation. I mean, they're not pressing the keys, but for all intents and purposes, that platform is content creation. There's a giant gray area in between those extremes. And we know that we are somewhere in there for industry secrecy reasons. We don't actually know exactly where we are for some of these platforms, but we know we're somewhere in there, but we don't know where the lines are. We don't know how close we could get to the line and still have 230 protections be preserved. So I think it's a very tricky question that for me actually raises the issue of whether we need to find some different approach than the one we've got. Maybe this is the approach that worked well back in the early days of the internet, but isn't the right one now. I don't have a great view of what to replace it with, but I think we need to have these open discussions. 
That's fascinating. Now, you were talking about reactions to algorithms, and it reminded me, because you were also bringing up the context of education, of, I think it was last year, the A-level algorithm in England, where they said, well, the high school children have not been able to sit examinations because that involves putting a lot of children in a room together, which is not a good idea in a pandemic. So we're going to give a machine the job of guessing what they would have scored anyway, and it was an unmitigated disaster. And the conversation I thought was interesting in that the public blamed the algorithm using a lot of four-letter words. They didn't blame the people who wrote it or the people that were responsible for implementing it. They focused on the algorithm. Was that just an accident? I'm assuming you're familiar with that. Was that just accidentally that they happened to focus on the algorithm rather than going after the Minister of Education? Or does it speak to a more deep-rooted perception of distrust of computers? So I think in this particular case, I think part of the focus was on the algorithm because that's what changed. I'm sure there were people who are unhappy with the whole system of A-levels, but this was a thing they could argue against because something different had happened and people got hurt, people were harmed by it. But I do think that there's a deeper issue here, which is that in general, algorithms operate at the level of groups. Now, these could be very small groups, but even something like personalized medicine. Personalized medicine is a bit of a misnomer because what it is, is it's medicine informed, I should say, by data where the data are specific enough that it can make predictions for a group that happens to only have one person in it. Okay, So personalized medicine is not, let's figure out exactly what's wrong with David. Personalized medicine is about, let's figure out what's wrong with somebody who has these characteristics, where it just happens to be I'm the only one in the healthcare network, say, who's satisfied. You might go, wait a second, we were talking A-levels. Why is he talking personalized medicine? But the reason is because I think one of the things that became clear with the A-levels is that people view those as a way for me to be treated as an individual. No matter how bad my schooling was, no matter how good my schooling was, no matter how much I might or might not care about some of the topics, I'm judged by my personal performance. And what happens when you start bringing algorithms in is that the judgment of my performance is going to depend in part on how other people performed. So I think part of the backlash against algorithms was, in this particular case, was because people viewed the exams actually as a way for individuals to overcome or show that they were perhaps better than the school that they had gone to. And the algorithm said, you don't get that opportunity. Those were the cases that people tended to focus on. And I think the reason is because that's a case where we wanted people to be treated as individuals, that you would rise or fall on your own merits. Leave aside whether that's actually the way the educational system works. That's what we wanted. And the algorithm meant that we never had that chance. And just to give the explanation for anyone not familiar with this, A-level examinations are taken in England at the end of high school and have a huge influence on what university anyone goes to. And the algorithm that they introduced here essentially said whatever the results come out to be, they need to match what the school did last year. So if one student failed last year, then someone's got to fail this year. And we're going to do that weighted based on their assessment of their performance. And of course, that was easily understood and explained and easily seen as unfair. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we're on the verge of seeing some similar things I would expect. Take the personalized medicine case. What happens when the person who is close to me in the data set, and so the system says, well, you should be like that person, but actually there was some important difference. Maybe something about my history that wasn't included in the algorithm's input or something like that. And all of a sudden I'm saying, well, wait a second, my doctor would have known Maybe that's not right, but I believe my doctor knows me as a person. I'm not just a group of size one to my doctor. I'm an individual and they understand me and my complexity. To the extent that algorithms aren't able to capture that, I think we're going to start to see increasing pushback every time algorithms are deployed to make decisions in contexts where we think it matters that I'm an individual, not just part of a group. You've developed a taxonomy of algorithmic bias and You said that this is important because not all bias is equal. We need to understand the difference between these. Can you describe some of those different types of bias and perhaps illustrate with respect to some of the things we've been talking about? Sure. So one of the kinds of bias that can come into our algorithms, perhaps the one that's been discussed the most, is when essentially the world around us is a biased place. So when some kids perform better on tests, not because they're necessarily smarter, but because they're better prepared, because they happen to live in a school district that has more resources because their parents were wealthy. So put that causal chain together. And what's happening is we have some kids who are scoring better on a test purely because they come from more well-off families. And so that's a kind of moral bias. The person is succeeding not because of their merits, but because of the family they by chance happen to be born into. And so one important source of bias in our algorithms is when the training data that we use are biased in some important way. They don't capture the way the world is. Or if you think about, to use a different example, some of the early voice recognition systems that were designed to figure out what you were saying, what your speech was, and they perform much better on lower-pitched voices than higher-pitched voices. And the reason is because a lot of those data sets were generated by the engineers, the scientists, just recording their own voices. And so the gender bias in computer science, the very longstanding gender biases, those then show up in our data. And so the algorithm is mirroring that, right? The algorithm is in some sense doing the right thing in as much as it is mirroring the data it's been told about. It doesn't know that the world is biased in these ways. But then that manifests in differential performance. Or whether it's the A-levels algorithm saying, well, you're from a richer neighborhood, so therefore you would have scored better simply because of that. Or a voice assistant that doesn't recognize my daughter's voice when she was young. A really different kind of bias shows up, you might think, sort of at the other end of the process. So when these systems are actually built and deployed, Because the problem is that most of the time, actually, these algorithms are not necessarily built for the sole purpose of making a decision. Rather, they provide information that a human decision maker uses to actually do something in the world. And so what we can see is that, for example, if you build a system that works great here in Southern California, and then you try and deploy it in Vancouver, it might not perform well. We see this a lot with 
for example, self-driving cars. There are local norms that the cars learn in the communities where they're tested and built. If you drop them in a different city, they're going to behave very differently than the other cars around them in an, in an unsafe way. Or if you imagine a personalized healthcare system, a diagnostic healthcare system, AI, that is built in an urban academic research hospital, and then you want to deploy it in a rural community where the health conditions might be different, where the background assumptions are going to be different. So that kind of how we deploy a system and where we deploy it is another way that we can get these sort of biases where an algorithm can lead to significant harms, not because of anything that the person did or deserved, but because the algorithm failed for people of that group or didn't perform as well in that context. And so in the work you're referring to, we sort of go through all catalog of these. Those are two of, I think, seven or eight different sources we look at. Is there a differentiation here between algorithm and data? It seems to me we're talking about data. I think there is an important distinction. So the first kind of thing I talked about is much more about the data. And so we can, if we want, use different kinds of learning algorithms that can compensate for the biases in those data. Right? So we can actually do better just by learning intelligently from the data rather than just mirroring it. But on the other side, if we think about building a diagnostic AI here in San Diego and then deploying it out in a more rural area, there what's being transferred is the algorithm. Now, we might say, well, the problem is that it was built on data that are not representative of the more rural area. But it might also be that the problem is that the algorithm has embodied assumptions about the kind of healthcare that is available about the healthcare network. So it might include not only diagnosis, but recommended treatments. And those recommended treatments might include things that are simply not available in a more rural area. There's a version of overfit. So yeah, that could be a case of overfit. And so most of these things are going to tie back to data in some sense, simply because most of our AI systems are built on data these days. Uh, we don't any longer do much with experts just hard coding their expertise into an AI system. So in that sense, it's all going to trace back to data. But sometimes the tracing back is pretty complex and many, many stages. It isn't as easy as people sometimes think, which is, well, just collect better data. Right, because sometimes it doesn't exist. No machine learning algorithm is going to predict a female president of the United States. And to even have a chance of that, you'd have to be aware that the data to date is all male and you'd have to be really good and lucky at anonymizing the data to give it a chance of doing that. Where does that fit in the taxonomy? So one part is that fits in in the sense of the world is a biased place and that can manifest in the data. We can introduce biases in learning to try to compensate for that. So this is the idea that not all bias is bad. Sometimes we want to use bias to counteract bias. But how we do that is going to be highly driven by the knowledge, the values, the goals of the developer, of the data scientist, as you said. And so I think one of the key things here is to recognize that although machine learning AI is sometimes presented as you know, data in, model out, there's an enormous number of decisions and places that prior knowledge, prior biases, prior assumptions of the humans show up in that process. I mean, we're making all kinds of little choices at every step in the whole AI pipeline. Lots of little choices that are bringing in values, that are bringing in assumptions, that are bringing in background knowledge to help our systems perform better. 
Now, this reminds me that we were talking earlier about social norms for developers, and here you are in education talking about the ethics of this technology at a place where you're raising the next generation of those developers. I mean, since we're getting near the end here, what's the responsibility that you feel in that respect, the drive that might be within you in that respect as you look at your students? And what would you say to prospective students entering this space? So the obligation I feel is a pretty massive one. I think that it's absolutely critical that the next generation be taught and shown the ways that we can do things better. I mean, my real goal is I don't want it to be that there's AI or data science, and then there's the ethical version of it. I want people to think of ethical and responsible AI and data science as that's just doing it right. You know, just as you shouldn't fit a linear function with a quadratic equation, you're just bad at your job if you do that. I want it to be that if people are not thinking about values, they're just bad at their job. And we need to create these kinds of social norms and cultures. Now, how do I get the students to do this? This is actually the easy part of the job. The students are banging down the doors at both my current university, UC San Diego, and my previous one. I just moved this past summer from Carnegie Mellon at both institutions. The students are the ones clamoring for change. The students are the ones who want more and more of these classes. The students are the ones who want to know, how do I make sure I'm doing it right? They are eager to learn. It's actually not hard to convince the students that this is a good thing to do. I confess, sometimes it can be a little harder with some of my colleagues to get them to realize they should not just be teaching these things as, oh, it's pure math. They should be engaging with the uses and assumptions of the methods that they're using. So I think in that sense, we've got a lot of hope that the next generation wants this. I think when we look at what's happened at some of the large tech companies over the last three to four years, we've seen the power of worker mobilization to try to affect change. We're seeing some big tech companies that are taking seriously ethical and responsibility issues and really trying to find ways to do better. And I think they're going to start to do better on the job market with getting the best talent because of that. Because I just see that the students, there's been a real shift in the last few years. There's a kind of awareness of the impact that technology has had on their own lives and a desire to ensure that they're doing better for themselves and for society. That's a really good place to start wrapping this up. How can our listeners find out more about what you have been doing and will be doing? Well, so the easiest thing is uh, my website, which is just www.daviddanks.org. My whole name, just one long word. And I try to keep papers posted up there and upcoming talks and opportunities to reach out and connect with people. Because I think that these are some of the big questions that face our society. There are many others, climate change, not least among them. <laughs> but the impacts of technology and AI, especially, and the ways it's transforming society, this needs to be a conversation that's not just happening in academic halls, not just happening in the halls of DC or Ottawa. It needs to be happening, as it were, on the street. Thank you. That's a perfect place to wrap this up. David, thanks. Thank you for coming on AI and You. That's the end of the interview. Talking about how personalized medicine and data could be so easily de-anonymized reminded me of the study that showed that AI could tell race from X-rays, even when the images had been deliberately degraded so much that human radiographers could no longer tell that they were even X-rays. We talked about that in episode 82 with Krish Varshney. Maybe you want to give that a listen. And speaking of A-level exams, as we did, I went through A-levels myself some <clears throat> time ago. 
So I have so much sympathy for anyone who went through what the English school children did during the pandemic when, as we said, they had their agency taken away from them. The algorithm, and it wasn't even advanced AI, it was more or less as I described in the interview, that they were scored on a curve based on the historical performance at that school. So if no one at that school had scored high in a subject before, no matter how good you were, you weren't going to break the mold and get a good mark. The body administering the algorithm rejected an offer of help from the Royal Statistical Society, which should have been an advance clue. About 40% of the students scored lower than it was believed they would have in a real exam, and the appeal process was Byzantine and expensive. It appeared that private schools benefited from the algorithm, which didn't help. There were huge national protests, and the results were replaced by the teachers' estimates of their students' ability. And as we were talking about how to address disinformation, I very much encourage you to go back to episodes two and three of this show when I was speaking with Taiwanese Information Minister Audrey Tang. She told me that her strategy for responding to a disinformation meme was to launch another meme that was funnier than the bad one and which would spread further and faster and take over. But, and you can see how this would be a showstopper for the US government, it had to be launched within 20 minutes or it would be too late. 20 minutes. Now, as you might imagine, Taiwan has some special challenges with disinformation given its relationship with China, so they've gotten good at dealing with it. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI. And no, none of this was written by InstructGPT. Again, I'll tell you when there's AI-written content. Researchers at Columbia University have developed a computer vision technique for analyzing interactions between people and other people, or animals, or objects, on video, and predicting up to several minutes into the future what's going to happen. It's not as clairvoyant as that sounds, but it can observe a scene and classify it as, say, people greeting each other, and tell before it happens whether, say, people are going to shake hands. It was trained on thousands of hours of movies, sports games, and shows like The Office. So it learned, maybe not satire, but it learned that, say, a hug or a high five was a type of greeting. Their study was called Learning the Predictability of the Future. And you probably wouldn't want to attempt reading it unless you're au fait with concepts like Riemannian manifolds and hyperbolic entailment cones. Now, it may not come as a shock that they concluded that people who weren't moving much were easier to predict than ones playing sports. So there's a clue if you want to remain unpredictable. Next week, I'll be talking with Ben Schneiderman, distinguished professor at the University of Maryland, a legendary figure in the field of computer user interface design. His book, Designing the User Interface, was a Bible in that respect. I used it heavily myself. And he is now the author of a new book, Human-Centered AI. Absolutely fascinating convergence of topics there. Coming up next week on AI and You. Until then, remember... No matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.